Hi everyone and welcome to Fair Voice. I am your host, Hannah Syriac. Um, Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but the opinions expressed here do not represent necessarily the opinions of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So today's episode is all about the family of proclamation of the world. Um, so Pioneer Day is on July 24th and I feel like Pioneer Day has a lot of family elements to it. So we wanted to talk about the family proclamation today. So I do an interview on this episode with Tristan. Tristan. Tristan is a BYU graduate who, during the honor code protests, read a family proclamation in the world, and he'll talk to us about the importance for standing up for the family and what he thinks is going to destroy the family. A lot of his comments are very in line with what Ezra Taft Benson says, but I would like to emphasize an additional disclaimer. Um, we talked, I talked to him about this. Um, it's really tricky when we talk about issues such as the family, because a lot of the time there are political overlaps. And we tried our best to do this in a way that centered religious discussion. And there is a little bit of political aspects that are brought up, but it's not in terms of Republican versus Democrat or conservative versus liberal in any or any sense like that. It just talks about the ideology of Marxism and how and Marxism and gender theory and how he sees those ideologies as detrimental to the family and he explains why so just keep that in mind the interview is definitely a bit um it's a bit different it's different than the other voices that i think we've heard so far um it's different than a lot of other voices that we have planned in the future um i think tristan's voice is a very important one though um because he is highlighting true doctrine of christ um and i wish i had his moral courage and i think that's what really impresses me about tristan but before we get to tristan's really interesting interview and if you do begin to listen to tristan's interview i really highly encourage you to listen to the entire thing i feel like if you just listen to part of it you don't see how his thought process builds over time and seeing that thought process build over time and just especially at the end when he talks about the compassion and love that he has for groups of people. It's just really moving. And I was moved to tears during the interview and I'd like you to listen to the entire thing. So just listen to the whole interview. Um, it, it's definitely a bit of a, a bit of a emotionally charged interview, but I think it's really, really important. I don't, I don't really even talk in the interview all that much. It's really Tristan showing his amazing experiences and some of his really good thoughts with us about how to defend the family, why defend the family, other aspects like that. So why the why did I pick the family proclamation in the world? I was thinking a lot about what to talk about on this podcast. Um, and most of what we do is apologetics and other things like that. But I wanted to focus on the family proclamation to the world because I find it so important. Um, this document really has been centered in a lot of discussions that try to move away from the church's ideals. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the stance that marriage is between a man and a woman, that this is central to the plan of salvation, and that this doctrine is eternal. And we've seen a lot of different, a lot of different, um, a lot of different pro prophets and apostles talk about this doctrine, particularly recently. And I just wanted to share some of my own thoughts as a segue into this. Um, defending the family is something that I find really difficult. I'll be completely transparent. I find this to be one of the more difficult things because we're in a society now where the world does not resemble the world of our creator. We don't see the same familial ideals that are 
broadly proclaimed that are that were broadly proclaimed even 50 years ago we have seen a separation um from the standard of the nuclear family which is the standard that christ and his church uphold right because we do believe that we're a family of god but at the same time we place a lot of a lot of our responsibility and covenants um with respect to the husband and wife children family model the nuclear family model um and tristan's voice for, for this has been really inspiring for me because I've seen him as one of the people that has stood up for the family, which is not a very politically convenient position to hold, as I'm sure a lot of you know. And it's it's not an easy social position to hold. And I really appreciate the work that he's done. And, you know, we all have different methods of doing it. And I'm not here to necessarily give a stance on how you should do it. And that he doesn't say how to do it either. But he just shares his example of how he thinks we could share the family of proclamation in the world. Anyways, so I I have struggled my, with myself, not necessarily with this accepting the doctrine. Um, to be honest with you, accepting the doctrine has been fairly easy for me. Um, I am compassionate towards those who experience same-sex attraction and experience feeling like they're a different gender than they are. I'm very compassionate towards that experience. It's not one that I can have empathy for because I haven't experienced it myself, but I, I can't imagine how difficult that would be. And I can't imagine the struggles that are associated with that. At the same time, I do see a lot of reasons for why God has established the church and the family the way that he has. So it's been easy for me to accept the doctrine, but there have been times in my life where I've struggled to share it. And just learning how to share the family of proclamation in the world, I think is a really critical thing because it's such an important aspect of our church. So I'm going to kind of go through a couple of the main points of the of the proclamation and we're just going to talk them through um, and I'm going to offer some thoughts as to why that is. And then we'll move on to Tristan's awesome interview, which you know, again, listen to it all the way through. There are definitely, definitely some polarizing parts of it. I'll be transparent, but at the same time, I think it's important to hear those perspectives. Um, so one of my favorite parts of the, the proclamation reads, all human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each of us is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose, end quote. I love this, this part of the family proclamation because I think it defines clearly for us what our roles are. We have specific gender roles that I think sometimes we put more on than we needed to, and sometimes we put less on than we need, it, we need to, but the family proclamation clarifies what the roles of husbands and fathers and then also what the roles of mothers and wives are um so i think that that's an important part to remember but at the same time we we have this gender identity that is god given because that enables us to understand him better and to understand heavenly mother better um our heavenly parents are the ones who created us and i think that that parallel is really beautiful and the other part that I really like about the family proclamation is the family is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So there's a lot to unpack here. I think the word ordained calls to mind priesthood power, right? Because the sealing ordinance is a priesthood ordinance. But at the same time, the, the, the tricky part for most people, I feel like, is the marriages between a man and a woman. So one of the reasons, if not the... I, I'm sure there's more than one reason. But one of the reasons for this is the creation of children, right? Because man and woman are complements to each other biologically and i would also say that the family proclamation defines roles as complementary as well that are important they're complementary to each other biologically for the procreation of children this is important because i think the one of the essential characteristics of god is the ability to create our heavenly parents heavenly father and heavenly mother created spiritual sons and daughters and we are those spiritual sons and daughters we are the children of heavenly parents and the reason that marriage is between a man and a woman is because you need that ability to create in order to have this complete idea of God. I really like what people have to say about how God is comprised of heavenly father and heavenly mother because for me that clarifies the marriage union in a really beautiful way. Another really important part of this is happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founding upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. I completely agree. It's through the atonement of Christ that we are sanctified and that we are cleansed from our sins, that we are taught how to structure our lives, to live upon principles of love, faith, hope, repentance, forgiveness, mercy, but also, also remembering the commandments of God and remembering what Christ taught us. Um, these principles will guide our family lives. So when we're thinking about the family proclamation in the world, I think something we all can deeply consider is how are we fulfilling our eternal gender identity in order to perpetuate the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we can scroll down a little bit and it talks about what husbands do and what mothers do and how we work together in a familial unit, but there are definitely characteristics that are, quote, by divine design, end quote, that enable us to learn from each other in a really beautiful way. So with that preface in mind, I'm so excited to introduce Tristan. So again, I said Tristan is a BYU graduate and just a little backstory about how I met Tristan. I think it's really relevant. Um, Tristan and I met in the same ward, but we didn't know each other was in the same ward, but we connected over certain ideas. We interacted a lot on Twitter, actually, and on social media, where we really liked what the other one posted. And then he reached out to me after I had published something that I wrote, and he really liked it, and he discovered that we were in the same ward. And then I heard about how he, about how someone had read the family proclamation aloud at the protests and I was thinking, wow, like, that's a really tough thing to do to be studying it for the family when people are protesting that very concept. And we talk about why it's not just the honor code and why it, there was a time where it was actually protesting the idea of the family. Um, I thought that was a really brave thing to do and it turns out that it was Tristan. So Tristan, I'm so excited to have you on. Let's get started. Maybe if you find snippets of things you like, you can throw them in. That's true. Okay, um, so I'm here with Tristan, and Tristan's going to tell us a great story <laughs> about the family proclamation of the world. Take it away, Tristan. Oh, boy. All right. Um, we were saying something just off, off record, just barely, but I guess I guess we have to start start over, right? Okay. Uh, what is it, July now? So about... 
three or four months ago. Yeah. Uh, the protest. So the uh, people are listening are probably aware, but we had this this protest on the UU campus um, for the gay rights and the whole LGBT situation within the honor code. And what was interesting is that I was surprised at the spontaneity and the organization that were able that they were able to put together in a matter of like forty five minutes. They had a call for protest at twelve, and at twelve forty five they were drawing signs and and boards in front of the Wilkinson Center. And I was uh, quite impressed actually. I was like, wow, you know, like the organization is much better on their side than on ours. But what was interesting was that um, within 20 minutes they had taken over basically the BYU campus without any opposition. And so that was, I think that was the Wednesday or the, or the Thursday, but it was the day when the retraction came up. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do remember that. So, for, so, so to go back a little bit, right, for two weeks... Uh, BYU had basically came up with this thing unofficially, but people in the honor code were saying this kind of openly that uh, gay dating was now okay at BYU and all these things. And uh, me and a couple other people kind of like went undercover to try to see what was going on. So um, I went in the honor code office recording the conversation without the person's acknowledgement. But um, Utah's one party consent, <laughs> anyways, so you're good. <laughs> where they basically admitted, and the guy I was talking to was on pictures with the gay protester, so admitting that, yes, they had okay that and green-lighted that for, for the, the people that had inquired about that. And it was fascinating to me because I was like, that seems extremely inconsistent with everything else, but, you know, let's, let's see. And for two weeks, nobody knew. For yeah. two weeks, nobody knew. I remember, and everyone was complaining about it, and oh, yeah, yeah I, I have a lot of very conservative friends who were like, this is horrible. I know some more progressive people who were, you know... And both off- sides were frustrated. Yeah, That's exactly. That's what was so interesting, because <laughs> even, so the first day of the protest, I went just to interview people, just to get material. I just wanted to see what was in people's mind. But the most often recurring theme, when you would dig, and I talked to the leaders and everything was basically the Proclamation on the Family is a hateful document that will be uh, redacted, that will be done away with, just like the priesthood ban, just like polygamy. It's just another mistake of the church, and we'll, we'll move on from, uh, from this to better days. And it was interesting because that really seemed to be the pattern, that um, the proclamation was the key, um, the key place they wanted to attack. I, yeah, I saw that too, especially with the signs, and I was really kind of confused by that argument a lot of the time, because I was like, okay, so the priesthood ban was instituted for a period of time, whereas mm-hmm. this has been around since Adam and Eve, quite yeah. literally. Yeah, and, <laughs> literally, and, and so it was interesting to me, because, first of all, very soon we realized that half of these people weren't even from BYU. Oh, really? The protesters, oh yeah. Especially if you look at the subsequent days after I did that thing, um, I would say about 60% of them weren't even BYU students. And you'd ask them, they were from UVU, or they were not even in school, or they were uh, doing hair for whatever Paul Mitchell, like, they were not part of the BYU community. But they came as such to subvert. And that was always what bugged me, is if we're not even going to stand for things 
at BYU, where are we going to do it? I agree. Like, yeah. this is the last bastion, technically. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, if not here, where? And it was so interesting to me. You know, we keep talking about the, the silent majority and all these things. But um, after Anuveen, uh, even some guys from, you know, the Twitter community asked me to write an article to kind of like uh, sum up what happened and my feelings about it and everything. And it was kind of like a call to action. I was telling people, I was like, look, uh, I know the whole like uh, love your neighbor and all these things is important, but you, yeah, so you gotta, if somebody comes to your house and he's trying to burn it down, you gotta say like, maybe you shouldn't do that. Like <laughs> at some point you gotta, you gotta react. And we keep talking about the silent majority and I was really worried. I was like, is it a silent majority that disagrees with this? Are people afraid of reacting? Is there some cowardness there? Like, I was, I was trying to wrap my brain around why isn't anybody saying anything? And so the second day of the protest, right? So you have probably 150, 200 people in front of the Wilkinson Center chanting and, and, and marching, shouting gay rights, you know, left and right. And, and I want to make something clear is that... Um, I differentiate strongly between homosexuals and the LGBT activists. Sure. You, 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 I hope you understand what I'm saying, but I'm from France. I have lots of friends that are, that are gay. I worked in fashion for five years. Like I was the only, only straight man that was selling purses for Prada. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, purses for Prada. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was the only student, and I never had any problem with any of, of, of my coworkers. But it was interesting to me that um, in the middle of Utah, in the boonies, you know what I mean? Like, this is in San Francisco, that we could not have one school in the entire nation that would go a different way than the rest of the, 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 the modern dogma. Yeah, I do think that difference is really important, though. I have a lot of friends who are members of the LGBT plus community mm -hmm. who are faithful members of the church who are trying their best to do what is right. And then there are some people who would want to change the church. Um, what did you find when you were interviewing people? I'm really curious. I still have, I still have several of them. Uh, but there was a girl in particular. Her, she was one of the leaders. Her quote-unquote testimony was really interesting to me because she said, I came to BYU at 18 and I didn't know anything about the world. And then I started studying sociology. First red flag. Sorry. We should burn that department down. You can edit that. Up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it in. Uh, I started studying sociology and just my eyes were open to the reality of the world and systemic oppressions and my own sexuality. And she basically told me by age 20, I had become bi... And I had become involved in all these fights, and I realized my own oppression. Like that chick was from some place in Utah. She probably never met a black person before. You know what I mean? It's like not to be offensive, but yeah, you, she didn't oppress anybody. But just growing up in suburbia in Draper, and I was thinking, huh? She sounds a lot like the nut jobs I've heard from Berkeley on on YouTube, you know? But this was BYU, and that kind of like made me realize that. Are we teaching the same trash that's been taught in every basically Marxist-owned university in America? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, we've talked about this yeah. a little bit where 
you have these ideas about gender theory that come from Foucault and other people who all all, honestly were purporting pedophilia too because that's how radical sexual gender uh, gender theories work that's the extent that they must logically Mm -hmm. go to but they have all these theories that are based on a lack of religion a lack of god a lack of reason because that's the only way that you can have true equity being equal to equality exactly and that's what is so interesting is that most people have no idea about Foucault, about Derrida, about the people that came up with a very structured ideology, postmodernism, to 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 basically destroy everything that the church is supposed to stand for. Sure, and Foucault's the most cited scholar in humanities, even yeah. to this day. Yeah. yeah. So basically we're using tithing to finance departments that are designed to destroy the church. And it was interesting to me that nobody seemed to worry about that or do anything about it. Uh, President Worthen did not make one comment about the whole situation, nor for the two weeks, nor since, about the situation. It's almost like, oh, it never happened. COVID saved the jobs, or at least, at least from what I understand, of all the people that were involved in the fiasco that I, I, I've been at BYU for five years. That I've never been, I don't think there's anything, there's ever been anything like that. I thought the church commissioner's response to that was really effective and helpful, right. though. Right. It, it, it was good. Came came pretty late, but, I mean, you know, it was enough time to let Elder Ballard come and try to kind of readjust some things. But I'm just, I'm independently from the church, I'm really worried about the leadership of BYU. And it seems that the Twitter account, that was the people that would be responding to questions about when that thing first came up, yeah. um, were ideologically aligned with the protesters and with... You know, because the the problem is, Marxist theory used to be a French um, part of ideology. Even in, even in sociology and psychology, it used to be the the weirdos, you know, that meet and are trying to plan their cultural revolution. But today, they are they are the majority th- uh, thinking part, and and I'm just I was surprised because I came to BYU f- all the way from France for the very purpose of not having to deal with that. I thought that this was going to be the only place on the planet that would say, we don't care about government subsidies. We don't care about being accepted by the NCAA for sports. We don't care about any of that stuff. We will hold true to what the prophets have said and to what the church needs to stand for. Because if we don't stand for it, nobody will. And so that was the reasoning for me. It just seemed that several people in academia at BYU and, and are uncomfortable with that idea. And they would rather, you know, to quote Elder Maxwell, have the main residence in Zion but their summer cottage in Babylon. Because it's comfortable. You don't want to be seen as the bigot when you go to the, to the regional conference for sociology research or psychology research or humanities, right? It's like, oh, he's the guy from BYU. He's the bigot with the Mormon church that uh, hates gays. And they don't want to have this. And so all I'm saying is if you come to BYU, you have to accept the mission statement. You have to accept that it is not a university like others. And if it is a university like others, then change the name. 
a lot of protesters are calling for that now because we're on a different battle now. It's it's the whole change the name thing. Oh, I'm aware. <laughs> but, and they say Brigham Young was a racist and he was a slave owner and all these things and we should change the name. Uh, I tend to agree with them for different reasons. I'm like, you have desecrated this university <laughs> by letting critical race theory take a comfortable seat there. Brigham Young would be ashamed, change it to something else. You know, call it the John Dalen University. Call it, call it the whatever you want. But I have too much respect for Brigham Young and any of the old timers. <laughs> I think that they will burn this place down themselves as soon as they come back just because of what we have done with it. And it's a shame because there's so many good-hearted people, good staff and brilliant professors that teach there, but they're afraid of speaking up. We tried to do a family proclamation club um, towards the end of the semester. We could not find one single professor that would be willing to put their name as faculty advisor for a family proclamation club. That's really fascinating. Actually, um, just side note for a plug of my own, I am involved in planning an event around the family proclamation this fall. We found several professors willing to do that, so I'm I'm glad. I'm I'm I, I hope that's indicating a change. I I hope so. Because when we try to do a club, a lot of people said that's too polarizing, that that's you know that's not helpful for inclusivity. Um, I had a friend who wanted to start a pro-life club at BYU. Uh, she got the same. She got the same response. And oh, well, I have another friend that was involved in that. But, um, I I just don't get it. I just I just don't understand it. I would seriously, and maybe I'm delusional. You you see, maybe I'm too uh, I'm too much of an idealist or something. But I would really not care if we are considered marginals and crazy and everything is like at this point I see the direction that the world wants to take and I don't want any part of it I don't care if they call me crazy you know if you go to an asylum the only sane person there is considered the insane one I really don't mind anymore the social stigma the margin the marginalization and I don't care if PWC doesn't come higher at BYU anymore we should, this shouldn't be our priority. Sure, we'd love, our program are excellent and we get recruited by very big companies, but if they ask us to sell our souls every time they want to hire one of our students, I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth it. And obviously many people disagree with me on this. Now, I'm not in any position of, of power at BYU, but I've been there five years. I've seen many different departments. Um, and we clearly have people at BYU that preach apostasy during their classes um, and, and are encouraging some students that are struggling you know, to, to transition out of the faith in whatever terms they're using. And, and just you think about it, right? You're, you're a young girl from Grand Junction, Colorado, and you come to study humanities or something at BYU and you're 18. You leave at Helaman Halls and you start studying new things and, and that's the kind of things you get. You get... You know, they're all, they're, the old church prophets were bigots who never gave a real place to Heavenly Mother or all, all these things. And you get this for the, the, the big part of your day, every day for however long, right? You are in a position where you're very uh, prone to being influenced. And I feel like 
your parents that think that they sent you to BYU to kind of be in a in a good spot, not a not a safe zone per se, but a at least not being taught apostasy, you know. That's, it's that's yeah, like I feel like there's moral warrants that come yeah. to being with, with at BYU. I will say, like with my own experience, there's been a lot of really great professors that I've had that have definitely preached the doctrine. And I will say to the church's credit and to BYU's credit, I can't imagine how difficult it was to retract that those statements by the honor code after you had yeah. the what like the Washington Post and other outlets do articles that depicted people kissing each other of the same sex yeah. everywhere. I will say to BYU's credit, I was really impressed and pleasantly surprised, honestly, yeah. by their decision to stick by that. Yeah. And I'll take I'll take three minutes to talk about something that you can keep keep or not. But that's why we wrapped our brain around why it happened this way. It made no sense. Um, because the board had approved the change in wording but they did not approve the interpretation that the honor code made of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so the communications department and the honor code office, I feel, all I'm saying, all I'm saying will be this. If you were a, an activist for that cause at BYU, this was the best move you could have made. And we know that there are several people in the honor code office who have very strong affinities for the cause. One of them is an openly gay man, you know, I won't quote his name, but he's an openly uh, gay man who uh, does conferences about, you know, uh, sexuality and all these things at BYU for the, for the gay community. And I'm, I'm like, I can't, it's not crazy on my part to think that there might not be complete impartiality there and that you may have your own horse in the race. But if you do this and you like, throw out this statement before anybody can say anything about it, that's a power move. Because either the church loses face in some point and it's like, oh, they don't know what they're doing on that aspect. Or the church can't retract because it's almost like too late. And, and then you've made progress towards your cause. Yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, I think it's kind of regrettable the way that it happened because there was a lot of pain caused to yeah. people on all sides of Absolutely. this issue. Um, but I will say, I... I think it was kind of inspired the way that it happened because I think we saw BYU finally take more of a principled stand mm-hmm. against against what is contrary to the Family Proclamation. I really would like you to share your story now about what you did, <laughs> how you took personal responsibility. Because I, so Tristan and I are actually in the same ward, and I had no clue that he was the person who did this. I found out. <laughs> A couple of months afterwards, and I was like, "Wait, I've been going to church with him for like six months." And, and we had never idea. talked. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had a conversation. Yeah, we hadn't at that point. No, we probably interacted more on Twitter <laughs> than in real life for several months before we even knew of each other's existence. Yeah, exactly. That was funny. Yeah, <laughs> that was Okay, um, that's actually a great segue into into what I want to talk about next because. Um, I feel like a lot of people, especially in the church, I don't talk about people outside. Like that's that's almost none of my problem. You know, you talk about your family first, and exactly, you, yeah. you, you, you clean the universal before you take care of the rest. Several people in the church, and I would always say, almost say a majority, are becoming very complacent in the way things are going. And there's there's a scripture that talks about this, where they say, you know, all is well in Zion, all is well. Zion prospereth, 
and I feel like a lot of people are going to a mentality, they, they read the events and they say, oh, things are going so badly now. But, you know, it's, it's, part, of the, it's part of the story. You know, I've read the scriptures and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And the second coming is going to happen and everything will be well. It's going to be great. But they don't understand their own responsibility in bringing Zion to pass for the Lord to come back. The reason why that story happened was very, um, almost I almost want to say circumstantial. I was not planning on being on campus that day. I didn't have classes that day. What happened was a friend of mine texted me. I just texted him. was like, oh, the protest is going on. It's like, oh, yeah, it's even bigger today than it was yesterday. And I had nothing to do. You know, I'm a senior. Senioritis. Yeah, definitely. Time stand. I was like, if I get bees, you know, whatever. And I just dropped my backpack after whatever I was doing. And I just walked up to campus on that hot spring day. And I saw the protest happening. And a friend of mine was there. And we just looked at this. And there were lots of, of bystanders. People around just looking at it. Not saying anything. And you could see on their face that they disagreed with what was going on. And the slogan that went from disagreeing with the honor code to openly calling for some apostles to get harmed. Yeah, I, I would like to just clarify this for the people listening. So at first, the honor code protest started off as you know, let us keep the misinterpretation of the honor code that the honor code office put out. But then eventually it very clearly, and I think even the daily universe, which I would say is um, not exactly a partisan newspaper at this point. um, Even the daily universe admitted that it went to, you know, like let's change the church. And there was a specific student who called for the death of President Nelson and President Oaks. Um, There were a lot of really nefarious statements made out of this protest. So it was not just an innocuous thing. It it went to a really bad place. But anyways, I just thought she can clarify that. So Tristan, keep going. that's, That's a great point. And that's what I'm telling you is that I really want to make the, the, distinguishing point of there are some people that have affinities towards towards this cause because maybe they have a sibling that's gay or they have a cousin or something like that. It's something that brought them to a more intense sensitivity towards that issue and are just really looking for answers because and I understand this I, I don't mean to diminish the church in any way here but it is one of the tricky issues that we have and we don't have a clear answer for it to be slightly caricatural, we ask members to be to live a monkish life for the rest and then figure it out with God. And I understand that it is an extremely difficult thing and that it, that is not do you understand? That's oh, why definitely. that's why I was differentiating between homosexuals and the LGBT um, activists, activist yeah. lobby, yeah. yeah. Because these two things are not the same. I agree. There's a difference between like um, loving men and wanting to destroy the family because because it doesn't fit your own heart. You know, you do yeah, understand what I'm saying? It, it is not the same thing. I, and I think what I am fighting them yeah. is the problem. Exactly. Yeah. And they do it on purpose. Yeah. What I am fighting, and I want to make this extremely clear, is that lobby that seeks to destroy the family. And that's why the family proclamation is a banner. It's not because we hate anybody. It's because this is the hill we need to die on. You hear conservatives all the time. As soon as the left starts winning something say oh this isn't this isn't the hill to die on i'm like you've lost an entire mountain by this point which which is the hill that you're going to fight on 
Which is it gonna be? And it's like, the entire Himalayas has been lost hill by hill at this point. Like, we need to do something at some point. And I truly think this is the one. So this is what happened. The second day of the protest, I go up. And my friend is there, and we just look at this. And we just have no idea what's going on. But... I remember at this point that a lot of people usually wait for somebody else to take the first step when they try to resist or when they try to fight. And so I just drop my backpack and I don't know why, but I just tell him, film this. I just tell him, film this. And I don't know why, but for a moment, and I heard later that apparently it was a memorial minute of, or of some sorts and I wasn't aware of that but they stopped chanting for like a minute and they sit on the floor and I just started walking I just started walking towards the protest and at this point I had no idea what I was gonna do but a feeling in my heart told me you're gonna be fine you need to read family proclamation and so I pulled out my phone and I studied reading. I probably was able to utter 25 words before I'm swarmed by a hundred protesters like yelling gay rights in my ears. Some of the dudes that were trying to fight me uh, while others were trying to block them. And it was really interesting and I want to make this point clear. It was almost like I was on a cloud when that happened. Not in a cloud like I was super happy about what was going on but I felt extremely protected. I felt above the above the direct physical confrontation that was happening. And I felt protected and I felt like this was the right thing to do. And after this happened and the video the video is still out there I believe and and I tell them I'm like look we don't we, we don't hate anybody but we will defend the doctrine of the church. This isn't against you. Like, you can do whatever things you want, but don't come to the only bastion that's still defending these things in the entire country and try to subvert what we have created. That was, that was the message. The reason why the family proclamation is so important is this. The nuclear family is the foundation of any strong society today. And the reason why I believe Satan is so adamant about trying to destroy it is because if you think about it, and I mentioned this, actually, I talked about this in the talk that... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gave a talk in our ward that was probably the best talk I've ever heard. It was actually the day after he messaged me for the first time on, on Facebook. Oh, that's true. And he gave this talk, and I was like, oh, wow, what, what a follow-up. <laughs> in, in the talk, that's something I was very passionate about it so I mentioned this but in the talk I, I quoted the communist manifesto kind of like looking at my bishop like is that okay I don't want <laughs> but I was running late he had given me 15 or something minutes and I went overboard as, as I always do um, but this is why it's so important in the communist manifesto they make a very strong point about how the family is the first factor of inequality in society and how who you are born to and who 
like what is your socioeconomic environment will basically determine who you will become and that isn't fair. And so they call for the destruction of the nuclear family and the communal rearing of children in basically giant public boarding schools where you don't see your parents anymore. That's, that's the ideal depicted in the Communist Manifesto. But if you think about it, if Satan gets his way with this, you are potentially able to destroy the gospel plan in one generation. And this is how it works. If you are in a state that preaches atheism as the state religion, you aren't going to teach the kids about God. So if you are able to take them away from their family and raise them in communal centers with no access to their own parents, you are preventing the transmission of the gospel truth from one generation to the other in one generation. And my point was that our society is already doing this in many ways. We send our kids to public school for eight hours a day where God has been completely taken out. We don't pray. We don't do the pleasure or anything anymore. The parents, because of the economic conjecture, both have to work to make ends meet. So the kids are raised by TV, media, public school for most of the day. And none of these things is teaching them about God. Even though they aren't being taken away to public boarding school yet, they spend most of the day alienated from the knowledge of the gospel truth. And so that's what I was, I, I was, I was talking about um, when I talked about this whole Marxist takeover of, of the ideology of BOUs that we don't even realize. I think a lot of these people have good hearts. I truly do. Even the LGBT activists, they, they want to do good. They think that this is the right thing to do. But they don't realize what they're truly doing. And that's my point is, you have to stop waiting for somebody else to take the lead. You have to stop because what if no one ever comes? You will still be accountable before God of what you've done or not, or, or didn't do, right? Um, that's what came through my head when I started reading. I was worried, but I felt power and the spirit in ways that I probably have never felt in other ways in my life. People all the time say, oh, Joseph Smith saw Jesus and the, and the Father. I need the same thing to have my testimony of the church. And I think, oh, you, you want to have Joseph Smith's experiences? You want to have a Joseph Smith's life? Because that's the price that comes with it. You want to be persecuted every single day of your life for what you've seen. You want your kids to be uh, taken out of their mother's arm and and dying in the frost, you want to be taught and feathered, you want to have to move multiple times just because people don't stop persecuting you and burning down your house. If you're willing to pay that kind of price, sure, you'll have the same experiences, but if you aren't even willing to tell some guy with a sign that says, if I'm going to hell, I'll see the Q15 there too, at BYU in the middle of the day, what kind of, what kind of courage do you think that requires this spiritual manifestation probably slightly more than what you've exacerbated so far i'm not trying to sound self-righteous or anything i'm truly encouraging people to start looking inward and say what am i doing to preserve the kingdom of god and to further it what kind of battle am i willing to fight 
nobody else is going to fight these battles. And if we aren't willing to fight them, then we will lose this battle. And when the Lord comes back, he'll find the, the church and the earth in a much worse state than it could have been. This is what I'll say. The event of the second coming will not happen by magic. If we are supposed to have built the new Jerusalem and have created a Zion society by the time he's back, we probably need to get going. And no one else is going to do this. The government is not going to come in and say, Oh, by the way, just for people in Utah and all of your members of the church, we're going to start these, these law of consecration programs. It's going to be great. No, everybody else, don't, don't worry about it. Like, this is not going to happen. It has to come from our own initiative. And I don't exactly know how. All I'm saying is, in your small ways, in your small fears, um, in your small um, ways and, and, and capabilities, you need to start doing this on your own. You need to be strong in your communities. You need to be able to fight. You need to be able to stand up against the person in Sunday school that's openly preaching evil. And, and that's the thing is, you have to recognize it. You have to pray for the gift of discernment because people aren't stupid. They're not going to come and say openly to your face um, false doctrine that's so flagrant. They're going to say something true and then they're going to sneak in something that's not true. And they, it's always that two step forward, one step back, two step forward, one step back. Because otherwise you call, you call BS too fast. But if it's subtle, that's what subversion is. Nobody comes in a society and says, like, we're going to destroy the church. <laughs> okay, cool, dude. Like, I'll see you later. You know, like, that doesn't work. Dante's Inferno reserves the lowest layer of hell for the traitors. Not for your enemies, but for the traitors. Because you can do so much more damage when you backstab somebody who thought you were his friend than from facing him face to face. It is interesting because in most of the rest of the world, and I know this in France, if you aren't so much into this church thing, you just leave. And nobody gives you grief for it, okay? You move on in your life and you're not active anymore. But in Utah, it's different. Because so much of public life and social life is mingled with the church that a lot of people stay in the church even though they don't really believe in it or they don't want to be fully in and, and instead of um, leaving which i'm not encouraging people to do but instead of just leaving and leaving the church alone they decide to try to subvert the church to mold their own politics and so what happens is you have people that stay in the church but their hearts aren't really there and all of their politics seems to go against the church. All their social uh, beliefs seems to go against the church. You're like, why are you still in the church? And they will tell you with a smile on their face, because I believe that we can get better and that we will move past our bigotry and racism and sexism and we will change the church from the inside and make it better because we're, st we're staying there. And I, maybe some have good hearts. But I truly believe that some are wolves in sheep's clothing. And I see them at BYU. And if we were a serious university, these people would be immediately fired. That was one of the most interesting interviews that I think will ever air. It was definitely really raw. I left it uncut. I left it unedited because 
I, I think we can learn a lot from Tristan. And this is one of those things that it's hard to digest. There are a lot of ideas there that um, we might disagree with. I, I know that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a wide range of perspectives that we can have on some of what he said, but I think it's really important that we centralize this theme of defending the family. And part of what I wanted to do on this podcast, I was thinking a lot about the mission of this podcast. And one of the things that I really wanted to do was to give inspiration and give instruction and give tools for defending the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I could talk all and on and on and on about the historicity of this or about how you know, the Bible is true because of these 40 philosophical ideas that bear themselves out in this way. We could talk about those things and we will talk about those things. And I think those things are really important to talk about. But at the same time, there comes this practical level of faith that I think we need to remember if we're not going to get lost in the muddy waters of faith. My own experience with faith in large part is academic. I'm a classicist by trade, but also I am a biblical studies research assistant, um, and I do a lot of writing for my books about my faith. And sometimes this academic nature of faith can bog us down. And I'm not saying that study is bad. I obviously love studying my faith. But at the same time, there comes a practical level of living faith, of experiencing faith, of defending faith that exists outside of um, uh, that exists outside of an academic sphere. And I think what Tristan has been very beautifully able to do, and I hope this is what you get from his interview, is he's been able to digest a lot of concepts that prophets and apostles have taught over time. And he is able to bring those concepts into the way that he defends faith because he is not, he's not trying to be, I don't know, he's not trying to start anything. He's not trying to be rude or offensive, what he's trying to do is lovingly defend the church and lovingly take care of who he considers family. So I hope that that was an interesting interview for you. It was really interesting for me. I'm really excited to hear some thoughts about it. It's definitely one of the more quote unquote controversial interviews that I'll do, but I really, I really appreciate you listening to it. I really appreciate you coming this far. Um, please email me at H-S-E-A-R-I-A-C at fairmormon.org for any questions or comments that you might have about this podcast. Our next topic, our, our next topic will be very fascinating, a little bit more lighthearted, um, the CES letter. So I will be doing an entire show. Um, the Sunday show will be on the CES letter. And this show will probably run about two hours. Um, we'll do a little bit of come follow me if we have time, but this was a really requested episode that I go through the CES letter that I talk about my general experience with it, my personal experience with it and just share that with you guys. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you for listening to fair voice. It's been great being your host so far and I can't wait for more interesting discussions.